Code white intake. Code white intake. Code white intake. Code white this recipe we're gonna get a pressure cooker and when you're when i say a lot of cilantro i I want you to when you get to the amount of cilantro where you're like this is too much two more handfuls and that's gonna be how much we're gonna use in this recipe so can i do this in my instapot or is this like some type of uh, pressure cooker thing if you want to go to fucking jail you can do it in the instapot sure (laughs) this is serious business I didn't realize there was so much at stake. Yeah. So we're back after six months. Um, I have been doing sort of the same thing. I got promoted into, um, if there's like a, if there's like a very, very D class of nursing administration, I, I, I got it made in there. I think it's like the lowest tier you could possibly get. Like what's below bronze, uh, aluminum foil. Yeah, I was going to say tin, but aluminum would it's, be good. Yeah, tin seems like it's more expensive than With aluminum. With the aluminum form. metal coming in in fourth place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's me up in administration. So I'm I'm still running on the floor, but I'm doing a lot of like operational stuff. You were still on a hold with me a, a week ago. I jumped a counter yesterday. <laughs> That's a true story. It really happened. I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> Where have you been? Uh, doing more of the same things that I was doing before, I suppose. Um more nursing, I guess. I don't know. You ever say you're a better nurse? I guess you're just more nurse. I'm more nurse. He is more nurse. I'm more nurse. Yeah. So. Just more stuff, more patients, um, living life, kind of just trying to find a balance and be happy and, you know, be that capable um, big person. Well, <laughs> I'm certainly glad we're doing this again. I think the last one we did was like Christmas. It was so Christmas. How was Christmas? Christmas was good, and um, I hope everybody out there had a Merry Christmas. Are you ready to discuss why we stopped doing this podcast? Sure. So, I'm a big Trans-Siberian Orchestra fan, and I wanted to work in some Trans-Siberian Orchestra Christmas music for the fucking Christmas episode, because how hard is that? Like, we could do whatever we want. Like, we have all this equipment, we have just tons of, tons of music, and Isaac's doing his thing he's like no absolutely no trans-siberian orchestra i had my heart set on bing and that was it i mean i'm not going to say there was violence i'm going to say that it was near violence and there was a broom involved there was a several months where jody and i were only allowed to communicate through attorneys yeah there was that (laughs) and um i'm mostly sorry mostly for the broom thing I still feel like you're saying that just as part of the litigation process, but I accept your superficial apology. Well, you know, I mean, mediation's going pretty well, so. I won't say that I'm sorry for Bing Crosby because I'll never make an apology for Bing Crosby and all of his wonderful Christmas magic that he's brought all of us here in July. But you can at least say that Trans-Siberian Orchestra was, was a reasonable 
choice for Christmas mm. and that I may have gone into rampage mode. It was not unreasonable. And, you know, we never even got to talk about Mannheim Steamroller. And I can only imagine that that would have only ended in tears. You know, we, sh- we should have talked about it because I probably could have really compromised there. I don't not like the Mannheim Steamroller. We should take this to the attorneys and see how they feel. Because I'm already getting heated just like talking about it. So... <laughs> I don't want to get into... Yeah, I don't want to get back to that. I don't want to get... Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is how it started. Damn it, Jody. Sorry. <laughs> We're back. What do you want to talk about today? Uh, you know, I think what's been most relevant, what I've seen most lately and really been more, I think, inspired to be a better nurse and a better person is the way that some kids are not choosing to interact, but that they're capable of interacting. Expand on that. Well, you know, I think we go through, especially certain people that are clinical and we consider certain behaviors and certain uh, Walmart types, if you can, or whatever that story always is of, I saw this weird guy at Walmart. Let's just say, for instance, we're target. We're going to let you off the hook for a minute, for a minute, but they're acting appropriately for what they're capable of acting. And sometimes that's worse than others, and we see some of that. Um, what do, what you, you know what I'm talking about here, Isaac, right? We're talking about the spectrum of different behavior that presents to us. Yeah, and but really the root of some of that. And I think what I wanted to approach today was, I think, more of a trauma response and arrested um, developmental stages where like certain it, things happened or certain things didn't happen that should have that interrupted that process. Certain important attachment milestones were interrupted. and Yeah. yeah. So there's trust issues and it's not that they don't want to, they just simply cannot do that. Yeah, because they're not, they're not, some of them are not capable. Yeah. So I pulled together some research. One of my favorite little niches about this topic is uh, reactive attachment disorder. Okay. Um, I don't feel like we see it terribly often in the acute care setting. Um, I mean, we do, but it's probably undiagnosed. This is, it's like it accumulates over a long period of time. And I saw it a whole lot when I worked at a children's long-term psych hospital and like we specialized in it. So, a a rad baby was whenever somebody would come in and they were like, okay, so this, this kid has reactive attachment disorder. It's like, oh fuck, this one's going to be a doozy. Cause my opinion is that, um, psychosis aside, reactive attachment disorder is probably the most difficult diagnosis for a pediatric patient, uh, hands down. Yeah. It's like the black swan. I mean, you never see it. Yeah, you, and and you when you do, cases. yeah, when you do, the swan is coming up out of the water and <laughs> shitting all over the place. And it's got these big dragon wings with these terrible claws. It's, it's awful. Yeah, it's like it, they had wings with claws on them, and each claw had a wing on it, and each wing had another claw on the end of it. Yeah, it was something else. And he was like holding a sword or something. <laughs> Some mythological Lovecraftian creature. Yeah. No, you're right, though. I mean, and those patients, they don't really, I think, integrate into the milieu very well. They're generally pretty isolative and withdrawn. Typically, yeah. You know, they get they get isolated out, even, I think, sometimes when they make an effort to try to blend in by some of the behaviors, and a lot of the patients just can't blend in with them. Well, so. well what it comes from, I mean, obviously, everything exists on a spectrum, and there's a genetic component and early exposure, and we're going on to Robert Sapolsky here, but... Uh, it, it, they're unable to 
established for whatever reason, a healthy attachment to their primary caregiver. They have difficulty connecting with others or managing their own emotions. They have like a general lack of trust. Uh, they fear getting close to anyone. They feel unsafe and alone, which is obviously pretty socially alienating. So I understand how they have this propensity for being isolative because they just are unable to connect because that, again, like we were talking about, that interrupted developmental stage with their primary caregiver interrupted by abuse or neglect or something less extreme like in and out of foster care, in and out of orphanages, or for some reason or another, maybe death or illness uh, taken away from their uh, primary caregiver after establishing a bond. Yeah, you know, and on that note, I think that there's a ton of stuff available to read and a ton of stuff, I mean, to certainly be better all the time in this field or in any field, and certainly pediatric psych is kind of its own thing. And I'll tell you a story the other day of just straight on the floor learning is I uh, we had a patient that was really just completely out of control and, you know, redirection wasn't working, de-escalation was failing. You mean there was a psych patient that was out of control? Completely. And that's, you know, never I, see that. I'd had days of relationship with this patient and they'd been progressing and I felt like they were doing better. And it's one of those things where she got super triggered and couldn't stop. Um, even when I'm communicating with her and I get a response from her that I think is genuine and akin to the way that we had been communicating, she still couldn't pull back and um, ended up in seclusion. And I noticed, or what I came to realize, I think, within the first 10 to 15 seconds is that this is her thing. This has happened to her before. Seclusion? Well, neglect and probably locked in a room somewhere. Yeah. For who knows. And it was bad. And she, well, How did she uh, regress in there? She completely regressed, went to the floor, started screaming and kicking and just doing a lot of things. And it was, it was difficult to watch as a parent and as a person and... My immediate instinct would have been to open the door. <laughs> I, I know, but the then there's a safety. so far now, even given this new stimulus, that she was completely unmanageable. Yeah. So she was in the safest place um, for herself and certainly monitored, and I was communicating with her, I mean, every five minutes, and finally got her to where she de-escalated, and she came out, and she, she was great. But again, a patient with a history of kind of what we're talking about today is this developmental interruption. It's kind of just something happened, some trauma-related incident or incidents uh, that causes this detachment where they just cannot emotionally um, participate. From day one to about two and a half years of age, it's like the most prime time to make sure that those attachments with the primary caregivers are nurtured. And if even sometimes the slightest thing disrupts that, you get outcomes like what with what we deal with uh, sometimes on a daily basis. It can just, you know, the butterfly effect. Um, you know, mom goes away because she has the flu or pneumonia and goes to the hospital for six weeks. You might have lasting behavioral effects on a kid uh, for decades to come just because of that one thing. Yeah. Because it happened just at the right at the wrong moment the, in the bonding the process, and, it, and it's so easy to um, you know cause an interruption in a in a in an attachment. I mean, you know, in in our line of work, we think about you know severe cases of abuse and and trauma and neglect and stuff like that or kidnapping. But it, it can be 
honest to God, things that count as a as an interruption in attachment can be as like minute as babies crying and they're not comforted, or a baby is wet or hungry and they don't don't get any attention, or um, kids that only get attention from acting out or extreme behavior. Now, touch on that. I feel like we could talk talk about that for a little while. Kids that have, that have been reinforced that only extreme or acting out behavior gets them attention. Well, you know, and who knows exactly what that process is at home, you know, what the family dynamic looks like. I, it, this child may be very difficult, and I can only imagine being the parent at home. And you're probably doing well for periods of time, and you may have a bad spurt of days, and there may be some very hurtful things done or said and over and over, and you may feel dangerous in your home setting because there's threats and there's aggression and all of those things. And we see that a lot, you know? Yeah. And you can see like, sometimes these kids don't feel like uh, to, to me, it doesn't feel like they know how to appropriately go about getting attention unless they're acting out. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and, and then we, we get them and they're in interacting with their peers. Well, cooperative play is happening. They're attending programming, no problems while this patient's fine. But the problem really is the stimulus that he's getting at home and mm-hmm. those relationships and that core dynamic that's happening with, you know, mom, dad, siblings. Uh, some of these kids are foster, so they're coming into new families and they're not necessarily attached. And, you know, while there's a perfect setting for all that, I think what people imagine happens when you foster or adopt and what really happens sometimes with some of these kids with, you know, difficult past is different. That's true. Cause, um, when we interrupt the attachment and development stages of these kids, uh, it basically sends them the message that they can't depend on others and the world is a dangerous and frightening place. And, you know, the world isn't a place for regular or normal behavior if the world is dangerous and frightening. Yeah. And sometimes you, and I had this explained to me by, a. uh, a uh, neuropsychiatrist that I worked with a few years ago, um, she uh, she called it an uh, an affective shift. It's pretty cool. We're like you and I, and we may have talked about this on the air. I don't know. Um, if if I see a positive affect, if you're displaying to me a positive affect, I receive it as a positive affect, and so on and so forth. But like, there's a, there's like a downshift to the affective interpretation in kids with reactive attachment disorder, um, and not just specifically with RAD, but kids that have, you know, developmental milestones have been interrupted. Um, they will see a positive affect and they will interpret it as neutral or they will see a neutral affect and they will interpret it as negative. And if they see a negative affect, they interpret that shit as a threat. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody could just be, in a bad mood or has a stomach ache and they are looking for these micro expressions on the face, like this negative face that may just be mild discomfort or they're just having a tough day or they're tired. This person's going to hurt me. Right. Because the world sucks and that's how they've had to wire their brain. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't see a ton of that, but we don't see none of it. And certainly it's always present. I think at least in some small part, so we're always dealing with kids like that. And, you know, it, it's where you really learn a lot of 
patience because if you're wondering how this kid got here, you go through the chart and you're seeing just at least the latest and you know some of these we have a little history on. But there's there's some bad things happening. Sometimes the world's just bad. Yeah, you're telling me, man. Yeah. Joey Jordison died today. I I know this hurts you. Uh, and I'm like sure. I'm I'm like I'm making a joke, but like I'm also a little bit not okay with it. No, you're definitely not okay with it. No. I'm, you're clearly not okay. I mean, no, no, it's okay. That's okay. I'd be not okay. It's it's okay to be not okay. <laughs> I mean, listen. Go ahead, say a little bit about Joey Jordison. Joey Jordison is the former drummer of Slipknot. Okay, he was a founding member of Slipknot. I'm a big Slipknot fan. I've been listening to Slipknot for like 20, 25 years. I did not pick up on the Slipknot fan. Were you, are you you're a big Slipknot fan? I don't know if you knew this, um, but uh, I I like a little bit of Slipknot. See, it makes more sense now, that big ass sticker that you have in your window. It's because huge. that says Slipknot yeah, it's too. Big. It's pretty big. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in my nightstand drawer, my top drawer, and this is not a lie, you can, you can quiz me on it. I will show you when I get home. I have a Slipknot mask in my drawer. Right next to your Grey's Anatomy. Uh, well, <laughs> there's a, next to a fucking Carl Sagan book. That's what it is. Oh, even worse. Even fuck you, man. <laughs> I hate this place. <laughs> Rest in peace, Joey. Um, so, you know, I, it, I may not have the DSM-5 criteria exactly right, so I'm going to riff it. You know, please don't sue me. All You know, it's, it's really draining all my funds already with this whole broomstick incident between me and Jody, I can't get another litigation process. Um, so disclaimer, I'm not a diagnostician, but if I'm not mistaken, you can't diagnose a kid with RAD after the age of six. Yeah. Which makes sense. Although it's strange because you can have the effects of this kind of stuff for the rest of your life. Yeah, but they generally progress into that IED or DMDD diagnosis where they're the just... The catch-alls. Yeah, the kind of the catch-alls, like, hey, he's tearing things up, or hey, he's up and down, he's labile, he's mad, he's happy, he's, you know... Or you're going to like this one, mood disorder, not otherwise specified. I love that one. That's, that's, I, that's yeah. fucking everything. Yeah, well, there's, a, sch- there's a schizophrenia, too. Schizophrenia unspecified, and there's a bipolar, and it's like... It seems like that would be kind of easy to specify given the patient, yeah. you know, if they're where they're at. But I mean, I can specify the fuck out of it on the floor. It's easy. Yeah. yeah. It's like, hey, how do you feel today? So what does this look like? What does RAD look like? You guys are listening. Um, I know we have a lot of loggers in the crowd, but those of you that the very few part of our listeners that go Canada. Thanks. Go Canada. Appreciate you loggers. I like it. Um, happy birthday, Canada. I don't know if it's Canadian Independence Day or if they even... Whenever it happens, we wish you well. Yeah. Happy birthday, Canada. I love you. Love your stuff. Um, I love the poutine. Is that Canadian? Yeah. Uh, Well, I had it in Canada and I've I've never had it here. Have you had poutine? No. With the cheese curds and the gravy on the french fries? That's why I've avoided it. I feel like like this is going to be the... the Trans-Siberian Orchestra thing all over again. No, it's cool. Hey, how about this? I'd be willing to try it, Isaac. It sounds great. That sounds pre-programmed from your attorney, but I'll accept it. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so what does it look like out there? Um, kids that have an aversion to affection, um, they sometimes even perceive affection as a threat. Uh, they'll go to great lengths to remain in control and to avoid feeling helpless because they're so used to feeling helpless for so long. Uh, they're oftentimes disobedient and defiant, which is a little bit of a 
gray area blanket term. Um, they're quick to anger, but not always like directly anger. They could be like passively angry stuff like, um, uh, high fives and, and handshakes and stuff that are a little bit too hard. Like this, just the, like this covert physical aggression stuff that you see, Yeah. but they know that it's like, it's not socially appropriate to squeeze your hand until you die. But like, here's my excuse to shake your hand and then I can squeeze it too hard. Not like the guy we were talking about earlier. I think he was just flat out crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't do that strong handshake. I don't know if you you do it. I don't I don't know if I've ever shaken your hand. Um, I can do it now. If you should we do, let's do it now. Let's do it on the air. It's going to happen. Right-handed. Oh, so you do it a little bit. See? Okay, so that was the passive aggression. That was. Uh, did you feel there, it? Yeah, I definitely felt it. Okay. It's a little bit of the Joey stuff. Kind of a dick move. You're kind of a dick move. Um, uh, you'll see an underdeveloped conscience, like they have trouble showing, feeling, or processing guilt not not going near that weird s word you know sociopathy we're not, that we could that's a whole different discussion um but like trouble feeling guilt and processing it because they haven't been taught or shown a proper way that guilt exists yeah you know what i mean because if we have abusive and neglectful Caregivers, we're not going to really experience a whole lot of guilt from them. So guilt's going to be like a foreign concept. But, you know, I think once those kids get around a little bit, by the time they're, you know, in that, I don't know, five or six to eight range where they really understand delivery and interaction and emotion, they really weaponize it. And it's almost like this little mini borderline thing that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I see that kind of in a pattern. Yeah. And... There's something called, and I didn't know what this was called before. I knew the idea, but apparently as a title, it's called primary process lying. Hmm. It's lying about some shit that we both witnessed. Like right now on the counter, I'm telling Jody that my beer glass is full. It's not though. Why is that? It's, I, I don't know, reality hmm. keeps getting in the way. So you think it's because I drank all the beer, but no, my beer glass is full. That's a primary process lie. It's, it completely defies logic. <clears throat> well, what it does is it, um, the patient is so fixated on the assumed consequence for lying that is probably incongruent with at home, you know, a, a small white lie, which any kid will tell it's part of, you know, cognition It's probably met with like severe corporal punishment at home. So they're so fixated on not being caught telling a lie that they will tell a lie that makes absolutely no sense just to avoid the consequence. The only thing that exists is the feeling and the consequence and not the actual reality anymore. I thought that was cool. I've, like, I've, I've understood the concept. No, but I'm, no, you didn't. You know what? That was a primary process lie. <laughs> He's, I, somebody's about to get corporal punishment in this room. Stop. Um, I've always understood the concept, but like, it was cool to see somebody... Uh, articulate it like that when I was doing some research. And also for some reason, and maybe you can help me on this one, um, a fixation on blood and gore. Uh, okay. So, you know, it's interesting. I had a conversation with my daughter. She went to some concert here recently and it was these horrible bands with these horrible names. Like, I don't know, just think of two, uh, give me a noun and a verb and cattle think, decapitation. There you cattle decapitation. I listened to them on the way to your house. Yeah, uh, 
Yeah, what, a jugular evisceration. Part, yeah. I'm sure that's already a band. Who knows? Party cannon. Party <laughs> But this subculture that is into this blood and gore and just, I, I don't get it. And I know that there's, I, I see that. I see the drawings in the back of the daily check-in sometimes. Some kids are into that. Really, and it's really dark generally too. It's never like unicorns or anything. It's always like demons and blood, yeah. you know, dead it's, stuff. These like Jungian archetypes. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's that's uh, an odd fixation. I don't have too much to. I want to look into that one later, and maybe when you know we talked about the S word, we could talk about that later because I feel like there's a correlation there between blood and gore and sociopathy. Oh yeah. S- stay tuned for that. It's, it's just a flavor. I think I think that type of stuff is just like when you go to get a pizza, you get you know like it's meat and cheese, but or you get the olives, you get the jalapenos, you get some of this stuff kind of sprinkled in. When you go to order a pizza, where is it that you're going that you can order blood and gore? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I'm sure everyone's going to do it. Is it death pizza? It's death. Pizza. It's death pizza. Yeah. <laughs> they, death I mean, pizza. the jalapenos are you know worth the trip alone. But, you know, going back, I mean, you, I think you talked about it earlier with the DSM. It's like there's so many intermingling different traits that fall into these different diagnoses and they express themselves differently. But everyone I find and everyone I've met so far has been very unique, Isaac, mm-hmm. just like everyone else. God damn it. <laughs> and so, you know, we have this very... Uh, we all have hearts, we all have lungs, but the vasculature, the vasculature is different. The nerve bundling is different. You know, the, just you're built different. You have different genetic types. You're, you're, you're afraid of some things. You're capable of doing some things. And it's just what it is. And I think a lot of this stuff is misfires and really weird bundles of just different things everywhere. So you see certain, you know, what they would consider to be, I guess, a sign and a symptom of schizophrenia, or this would present as that. Yeah. But you just see. We get stuck on, like, the, how to categorize things. So, like, some of these things fall into this bucket, and some of these things fall into this bucket. And what we don't take into account is sometimes these buckets are kind of part of each other. Yeah, it's weird. Buckets buckets are strange. And since we're right now denouncing the idea of over-bucketing, there's two types of reactive attachment disorder. Nice. <laughs> you like that segue? That it. happened completely organically, too, like my brain injuries. I, well, your notes are um, of mention. They're certainly... Let's talk about this. <laughs> How many pages do you have over there? It's three. Just three? Your writing is really small, though. Yeah. I wrote it on the back of staffing oh, sheets. Okay. All right. I got you. So there's two types of reactive attachment disorder. Um. And there's the one that we mostly see, and then the one that is far more rare. The one that we mostly see is the inhibited type of reactive attachment disorder. This is what we're familiar with. We, we know these kids, totally. Withdrawn, detached, hypervigilant, uh, push people away, act out aggressively when people are close, act out aggressively, incongruent to uh, a minor consequence or even a minor redirection, just like, hey, don't run. And, you know, the the next four hours are fucked. Somebody's getting bitten. (laughs) And then there's that other type um, that I feel like we don't see it diagnosed as much and we don't see it as much because it it chameleons as so many other things. It's called disinhibited and they seek comfort and attention from virtually anyone. 
they're really dependent. They act younger than their age. Um, they're chronically anxious. So like you're hearing symptoms that, well, honestly, they sound like so many other things. So like they just have uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. Is that though? You know what I mean? It's like, well, let's, let's go back into that past. What's the early exposure that we're talking about? Um, <clears throat> if you had to put a percentage on your interaction with patients, what percentage of them are inhibited and what, which ones are disinhibited? You know, I think we have, it's a different patient class. So, you know, you're talking about some of these guys like that. Some of these patients learn to become really good patients because they've been admitted five or 10 or 34 times. They've had more days there than I have. Yeah. So whatever that thing is, and not necessarily just with us, but you know, a different facility somewhere else or several facilities in other places or, you know, whatever's happening. They're heavily institutionalized. Yeah. It's, I think there's a lot of that behavior that gets learned and you pick up new things every time you're admitted. And it's almost like a, a, a delusion in and of itself when you're floating through these hospitals and you're saying that you're sick and you're learning new illnesses and then you start presenting those symptoms and yeah, there's like this domino effect and like this mirroring thing yeah. where you adopt the symptoms of those around you because it, you know, gets you, this is what you know, you're institutionalized and this yeah. is how you get but what interaction. Per- yeah, what percentage of patients come to me really shy and make poor eye contact and tell me that everything in the world's fine and we're ready to go home? Mm. More than half. Yeah. But what about these ones that are seeking comfort and attention from virtually virtually anyone and uh, not acting their chronological age? Well, I have recent experience with that, maybe. Um, In yourself? Like that recently. No. (laughs) (laughs) So, see, I love this passive-aggressive thing you're doing. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if we could even record another episode. You're still obviously fucking mad about the broom. I'm so mad. (laughs) (laughs) And I only brought one beer to pour, too, so I can't even. Yeah. I have another beer. It, yeah, get you a beer. Well, you have to drink the French toast, which you've already told me that you don't like. I'll drink the fucking French toast. I don't want you... Listen, if you drink that French toast, it's very likely the last French toast that's available anywhere. Like, And you're like, well, I'll fucking drink it if I have to. Really? Well, but what I really mean is that I want to drink it just so you can't have it. Oh, see, that's... Now you can't even have it. So let me, uh, let me explain the backstory here on the French toast. So there's this particular brand of beer that... Um, Jody and I really enjoy, and I don't know if I want to say the brand of the beer because they might send you can. us. They would love that. Well, I don't know. We might get a cease and desist letter. <laughs> They're like, we listen to a lot of your programming, and this is not something we would be associated with. Maybe. So there's this brand of beer, and they make Lakewood. Yeah, it's Lakewood. Sorry, guys. It's a Lakewood brewery in Garland. They um, they make. Uh, milk stouts and they're wonderful and different times of the year they make different ones and they make this french toast milk stout that i'm not a terribly big fan of uh jody really loves it and it's getting to the end of the season where they're tapering off making that milk stout the french toast and they're going to start making the peanut butter milk stout beer yes yeah no it's almost peanut butter time so me Offering to drink his last French toast might be the last French toast temptress that he drinks until fucking April. It would easily be April. And I just love how you're like, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, and you're going to pour it too. And I'll just <laughs> muddle through it. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> you can drink that Dos Equis that's in there. Ooh. 
No, I'm sorry. I don't order off the children's menu. (laughs) 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 Hashtag beer snobs. So, um, interrupted attachment styles, right? Yeah. We're we're digressing. Um, What neurologically and physically is going on, if you had to guess without looking at my articulated notes, where are we having a problem? What part of the brain? You can be wrong. Uh, it's okay to be wrong. Uh, well, I would uh, guess first, I would imagine the uh, limbic and amygdala. Sort of. Everything ends up there. Yeah. But um, where, the, where we see a gross underdevelopment is the right frontal lobe. Really? Yeah, that's where we see the structural stuff. Are you going to edit this where I sound smarter? Uh, yeah, well, I'm already, I'm editing it in real time. Sweet. I'm not. I'm going to make him sound dumb. I'm going to slow his voice down, too. I didn't even hear that. It's going to be bad. So, um, what goes on in the right frontal lobe of the brain, that's where you see impulse control and problem-solving skills and, like, risk-reward calculations and social interaction and attention and concentration. So... Here's a fun thing. So we, we've gotten lots of studies on RAD kids and CT scans, and I'm sure they're probably in the 60s just strapping them down and taking CTs against their consent. You want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs, baby. So uh, <clears throat> we got all these CTs. We've, we've established that it's an underdevelopment in the right frontal lobe. So there is a high comorbidity with reactive attachment disorder and poor language function and comprehension. There you go. So I was half right. Right there in the right frontal lobe, language processing, Broca's and Wernicke's area. Also, high comorbidity with reactive attachment disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That I will attest to. I see it all the time. Attention and concentration in the right fucking frontal lobe of the brain, man. Yeah. Right there in the area. You know, it's weird, too, because there's so many medications, I think, that are available for that. I certainly get a bunch of them. You'd think it would be a little more streamlined by now. You know, I mean, and certainly even in every class, there's certainly there's a ton of medications. But still, I don't know. Just, what do you mean by that? Well, in terms of streamlining the medication, I'm not an RN. So, well, there's just coming so many, from an RN, what do you mean by that? Well, in there's terms just of so many different amphetamine alternatives that are, you know, uh, ordered for, for that, you know, Focalin, uh, Vivans. Uh, Concerta, I mean, just Adderall, there's just a bunch of them. And I, I always wonder, and I don't know, I'm certainly not a doctor or a pharmacist, I don't know. You but know, you play the, one on TV. <laughs> not even. But I, I wonder what the method of action and how these are interacting differently, or if we have a kid that we, is taking one med that would probably benefit more from taking something else, but never had the opportunity because they didn't have a reaction poorly. Yeah, we the just first one, and it seemed like it helped. We but. stopped on this one, and what it seemed to do was slow them down. So I didn't investigate any further. Like right. oh, this is the medication for you because it worked, but yeah. we're not inducing any pathology. But I do, I do see that cross diagnosis a lot with kids that have these particular traits that are involved in these type of behavioral breakdowns at times. So I kept reading on this while I was sitting with a patient and I was, I was, I kept thinking about my experiences with reactive attachment disorder kids. And, um, I, I, my personal experience research aside, um, they're very slow to trust. You have to be super consistent. You have to teach 
the kids and show by example that you're safe and trustworthy. Uh, consistency is very, very difficult in a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. Because every 12 hours, there's another set that comes in that uh, has a different style, has a different area that they're going to bend on expectations and other areas that they're going to break on expectations. Because we all bend and break in different places. Yeah. That's just how it works. And I mean, people that work in the psychiatric field that don't bend and break anywhere rarely last very long. Yeah, generally, I think... And I see this pretty often when I have a, a kiddo like that. Um, they require a ton of attention, and you get involved, and you know now you're managing this patient and their behavior, and you're finding you know things to occupy their time, and you're checking on them, and you're making sure that everything's great, just to sort of like preemptively deescalate this patient, keep them happy, keep them going. Mm-hmm. You know, you're 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 processing with them, but at some point you're not going to be able to do that, and it's a going to be at a point where they really wanted you to or really needed something and you're busy with another patient or another incident or whatever's happening and that's when you'll see that patient not be able to process that because it's been available and it's been okay and I've been safe and I felt okay and this is helping me and now it's not and now I revert to this old behavior. And now Jody can't because he's, you know, piping urine samples in the the room and I can't get to him. Right. Maybe. I've I've not seen that. I, yeah, not that I'm not doing that. I yeah, think. I mean he is doing that. He's doing it right now. It's really weird oh. while we're while we're drinking, and he's just he's got all these urine samples. I don't so even know that. Passive aggressive. I, I don't know that these urine samples are actually even human. <laughs> I don't know where he got them. He just got over. He went over to the fridge and just started pulling them out. <laughs> Do you remember? And I knew that you were there. We were at the nurse station, and I'd sent a a urine sample cup down, and the. I think this is the first time it probably happened to me. I've had it happen a few times. With <laughs> brings his urine sample cup back down the hall, but he's drinking it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I was sure that you were there, and that guy—I don't know—I I don't know if he just forgot what he was carrying, or and he just was drinking his own urine, like, a, like one of those little juice cups. It was horrible. Oh my god! And I mean, he just slammed it. Like by the time he got to me, it was gone. You know, you started a urine cup story with you. In the hospital we used to work at, and I was thinking of another urine cup story that you told me at that hospital. Yeah. You sent a patient with a urine cup. What did he come back with? Not urine. Yeah. Not that it, kind of party. It was a different kind of party for that guy. <laughs> yeah. This was uh, uh, a lot more viscous. Yeah, and I didn't even smile. I didn't. I was like, yeah, you know, so I've been in a urine yeah, um, but fortunately, you're in the right neighborhood. Well, there's a sure. urinary response after ejaculation, so yeah. you're going to need to pee shortly. And if you could just collect that for me, yeah. I would appreciate it. And he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, you got the right hardware. You're you're good there. You know, you've honed it down." He returned. He I gave him a new cup. He brought it and did not drink it. What'd you do with the sample? I sent it to the lab. What'd they say? <laughs> I don't remember. Just, you can't think of he it. wasn't dying, or I would remember. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. I mean, like it wasn't it's, the semen wasn't glowing, or anything. no, it was no bummer. It okay to me. You want to? I got my fingers crossed. One of these days, somebody's <laughs> going to bring me a glowing sample of something. I don't know. I, you could probably do that. There's probably stuff. I think the Chinese are making those glowing hamsters, or whatever. I'm I sure it's a good idea. Yeah, whatever that thing is. You know what I learned how to do the other day? What? Uh, test feces for C diff. Yeah, that's fun. I say the other day. It was like three weeks ago. Yeah. But I did that. It was like nine fifteen in the morning. Did you get the little spoon and do a little collection and mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, like I had to. You had to defrost the test. I didn't know that about C diff tests. You got to defrost them like it's fucking chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I had no idea. That's interesting. Um, so I I was reading and 
One of the things that kept popping out to me is um, I feel like something that is going to be really helpful in the psychiatric setting uh, is being immediately available to reconnect with these, ki- with these kids after there's a conflict or an explosion or, or of some kind. Cause like, and I feel it now I've trained myself now over the years, uh, especially starting out in this field, working with the little ones like that, you know, we'll come in, they'll call a code, we'll run upstairs and we'll grab a hold of them and then we'll put them down and they've received their IM and we all go hands off and we walk away and that's kind of fucked. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, you know, sometimes medications are unavoidable and the behavior is completely just so out of control and it's so threatening that it really probably is certainly in a very psychotic episode, the, the best intervention. I don't like to do it. No. I always try to deescalate and I'll spend maybe extra time and maybe go a little further than I've seen some, mm. but I don't want to have a poor outcome. But right. it's, man, it is unavoidable sometimes. But you know what the super important part is with the reactive attachment disorder babies is hanging out after we've slung that shot yeah. or after we've gotten up off them out of, out of a hold in the floor or something like that. It's like that repair phase is like, I, I realize that we have to do the, the repair phase with all of our patients when we've had a big blow up like this. Cause it's super embarrassing, you know, even with our higher functioning guys. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of things. So with these ones that are, that have interrupted attachment and development stages, it's super important for them that we repair with them instead of discard them whenever everybody's acted an ass and we had to get all physical or something like that. They're really, really susceptible after that, uh, during that, um, like the cool down phase, what's it called? Hold on. The refractory period. Yes. Um, uh, of an adrenaline state. They're really susceptible and vulnerable during that time, like more so than you would see with kids who don't obviously have this differential diagnosis. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest benefits to being consistent with your patients and doing the things that you say that you will do and you know, being open when you say in the morning, if you have any problems, come and see me. Well, they expect you to be there when they get there. So being able to manage that type of relationship with several patients at once, you know, um, goes a long way towards being able to get them to program, get them to accept some stuff. Right. But some of these kiddos, like what you're talking about, when they do come down, they're, they need an out. And as long as you keep that relationship very consistent and when you approach them, they know that you're genuine when you're like, hey, this is all better and we're starting over and we're going to do this whole thing new and it's okay. They're much more willing to hop on that boat because they feel like it's real and there's an opportunity to get out of the situation. So, and help them save face. Yeah, and I, I, that's not just a nursing thing. You know, there's a lot of great techs that are able to do that. Um, and hats off to them; they're doing just awesome. One of the last things I wrote down was it was this um, this case study interview with a uh, uh, a child who had. Uh, been diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. This inter- uh, this interview took place when he was around seventeen, maybe even eighteen, something like that. Just a young kid. Uh, oh, that made me sound old. You are kind of old. Yeah, I'm kind of old. I made a joke about the Toxic Avenger earlier, and that kind of dated me because the person I made the joke to was like, "What's the Toxic Avenger?" I was like, "Oh fuck." It's almost like you can't even talk about Bon Jovi anymore. People are like, "Who's Bon Jovi?" You're like, <laughs> "What?" I quit. So this patient, uh, the, the, the uh, interviewer was asking them, what does that 
fear feel like? Because you have a baseline of fear. Fear is different from you. You you experience this fear differently. You were born in it. You were molded by it. Can you kind of describe what fear feels like to you? Um, and he says, and this is haunting, he says, um, rational distress becomes a fear that mounts into terror that then implodes into nothingness. A state of beyond hopelessness. A state of no other and no self. A state too diffuse and too cellular. Wait, is, is this written as a haiku? What? It's not. A state too diffuse, too cellular, and too absolute and too horrifying to any longer be recognized as regular fear. I live in a place without landmarks and no horizons, and I don't know how I see it, but I do. People are not three-dimensional when I'm afraid. They are cardboard cutout representations of people who just aren't there. That shit is fucking heavy. That's, that guy's so emo. I mean, probably. He is. But also, but also, like, that's a, like, if somebody were to ask me to, describe what fear feels like. I wouldn't even come close to this description. You know, this is like his, this guy's interpretation of fear is empty. You know, when, when I, if I want to describe fear, like there's, there's a, there's an elevated heart rate. There's this, yeah. my intestines turn to ice. The, the, you know, the adrenaline pumps, uh, my, my brain is moving quickly, but this guy having reactive attachment disorder um, whatever happened to him, whatever trauma, abuse, and neglect happened, he interprets fear as like a Salvador Dali painting, just empty and bleak and abstract and void and melty clocks. You know, he's not wrong. Yeah, I can follow that. Yeah, I mean, I see it. It's just... People aren't three. People are not three dimensional. They're cardboard cutouts of representations of someone who are, who is simply not there. Kind of touches on his neurological inability to appropriately connect to people. Yeah, I get that because his attachment phases were interrupted. Yeah, I always wonder. You know, varying degrees. You see certain people. You don't know, commit into relationships and. Become very hyper vigilant, almost like this obsession type thing where they find this person and the relationship goes on, but it's just really weird. The dynamic is weird and everyone sees it. And sometimes, even generally, even the other, you know, the side of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Here's a wonder you know, these people are functional and they're going through stages, but these are the kind of people that lose everything when that relationship fails, you know, because they've merged with it entirely. Yeah. Kind of like right. a, they didn't really have a sense of self, and when they were able to actually communicate emotionally and do those things where they had a glimpse of what it's like to be a person, they absolutely, absolutely did it, and good for them, but not having it after having it was too much. Like a fucking interloper. Yeah. You know? So bad. I get it. Well, we've reached that special part that we come to every week, except for the last six months, because we had a active restraining order against one another. Well, I'm, I'm willing to waive that to, for today and, and maybe tomorrow. Are you telling me that you've suspended habeas corpus? No, I, that's not in my uh, lane. Okay, because that's dangerous talk. That's, you know, we suspended habeas corpus and then Hitler took over Germany. Germany. That's not what happened. I just evoked Godwin's law. 
Listen, we appreciate you guys listening again to another episode of Assault Precautions. If there's anyone out there that's listening that's getting close to making a very poor and and what could end up being a very permanent decision, just know that there are people out there that want to hear your story and they'll listen to every last word you have to say. It's a suicide hotline, 1-800-273-8255. They're good people there. They're doing good work. Give them a buzz. Please. And until we meet again, have some Pantera. I think we're going to do that. Good time.